Good morning. Good morning. We are uh, taking a brief pause uh, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, normally we go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and uh, we've hit the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to take a, a three-week break from Matthew before jumping back into Matthew chapter 8. Um, because, again, we're going to be in Matthew for a very long time. So it's good to mix it up a little bit, and uh, we will be, we'll be doing that today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Well, they should be open already, I suppose, and, uh, and keep them that way for now. Uh, this, this break uh, we're going to be using to do a, a topical series where we kind of take a lot of the texts of the Bible and put them together uh, to, to see what the Bible says on a certain topic. Again, this isn't what we normally do, but sometimes it's good to mix things up uh, for a short period of time. Now, December 19th, 1775, the first year of the Revolutionary War, uh, the Continental Army had suffered a number of, uh, of pretty brutal and humiliating defeats to the British. And to raise the spirit of the American troops, Thomas Paine, the well-known philosopher and writer, uh, sought to strengthen the morale of the American soldiers with his well-known piece, American Crisis. It was published that day. And in that piece he says, these are the times this, that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of his country, but he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Now Thomas Paine was not a Christian, he was far from it, and actually uh, was a critic of Christianity. But in a way, his words ring true for the Christian life. Our entire existence on this earth, our entire life this side of heaven, it is a time in which our souls are tried. It is a time in which we face great conflict, great opposition, as we seek to walk as disciples of Christ. And this life is a time in which we experience hardship and suffering as we journey to the heavenly city. But the difficulties and hardships and oppositions that we face as Christians in this age and in this life, they're not impersonal. They're not abstract things like a tornado or like a disease. Now, the forces that oppose us, the battle that Christians fight in this life, well, our enemy is not only personal but decidedly opposed to Christ. As we take a brief intermission from the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be looking at the forces that we face as Christians, uh, what they are, how they operate, how we can endure and combat them, and how Jesus has ultimately overcome them. Uh, theologian R.C. Sproul summarizes the Christian situation well. He says, The great triad of enemies for Christian growth contain the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be examining these three forces, these three enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, the devil, that we may better understand and endure their assaults so that we can glorify Christ in our endurance. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a, a wise God. You know all things, Lord. And you know, Lord, that we need uh, information from you, Lord, that we don't have the wisdom that we need to get through this life as Christians. And Lord, in fact, if it were not for the information of the gospel that we've received, we could never even become Christians. And so we thank you for the scriptures, 
that you have given us information about you that is perfect down to the very word in a way that we can understand, that we can read. Written and, and even translated throughout the ages into human languages so that all the nations of the earth may hear of you, the true and living God. And this morning as we come to your, your word, I pray you would help us to understand what you have to say about this world in which we live. Lord, would you help us to be wise according to what you have said. Help us to learn from you this morning that we may honor Christ all the more in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, As we consider these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, we need to understand they work together, right? They're not three separate forces doing their own independent thing, but really they're, they're partners together. Um, for example, the world often appeals to the flesh. The devil often influences the world to appeal to the flesh, and the flesh, as Peter tells us, wages war against the soul. Right? So they, they work in tandem most of the time, but for the sake of clarity, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to take these things one at a time. Uh, this Sunday we'll look at the world, next Sunday we'll look at the flesh, and then finally we will look at the devil. So beginning with the world, what is the world? As we, as we consider this topic this morning, what is the world? That's a word that we use all the time. It's a word that's found frequently in Scripture. And it's got a number of different meanings. And not all of them are negative. Sometimes the world simply refers to planet Earth, right? Or it refers to humanity as a whole. Or it refers to the things that God has made. Um, but for the purpose of this series, we are looking at the negative use of the term in Scripture. What is the world in regards to opposing Christ? There's two words used in the Bible to describe the world. It refers to the world in this negative sense. The first is uh, cosmos, right, in the Greek, which um, usually, when it's used negatively, refers to the created world and, and those who live in it. Um, one commentator says it's those who oppose God in enmity, who resist the redeeming work of the Son, who do not believe in Him, and indeed hate Him. That has a pretty negative sense there. This is the word that's used in verses like 1 John 3.13, which says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, cosmos, hates you. The second word used in Scripture is uh, ion, which can be used in a variety of different ways as well. Um, most of the time it's got um, a, a sense of time to it, a temporal sense. It has to do with how long something may last. Uh, this word is used um, in the Apostle Paul's writing specifically to describe how this world in the sense of human history prior to the return of Christ, right, this point in time, we could say, and all of its characteristics are apart from Christ and under the control of sin. Now, this word, uh, aeon, is uh, the word used in verses like Romans 12, 2, in which we're told not to be conformed to this world. Uh, it's often translated age as well, right? This age, this present age, this point in time prior to the return of Christ. These two words are distinct, right? They're not the same thing, but they really do overlap in regards to the concept we're discussing today. Uh, we could say that these words, um, when we lay them over each other, when we combine all the information together in Scripture, we could say that the world is an enemy to the Christian life. Really what it is is all the systems constructed by humanity in opposition to God and his people throughout various cultures and times prior to the return of Jesus. Right? So I'll say that again. The, the world as an enemy to the Christian life is all of the systems constructed by humanity in opposition to God and his people throughout various cultures and times prior to the return of Christ. And we could boil that down, right, <laughs> short and sweet, to be the world system. 
right? The world system is another way this concept is, uh, is labeled sometimes. Now, for the Christian, this is the world that we live in, right? We live on planet Earth. We live amongst humanity, right? We are human beings ourselves. Um, we see this concept of, of opposition to Christ reflected in our society and culture. We've seen it historically, locally, globally. Um, and really, if we're going to kind of pick apart this concept of the world, there's three main aspects to it. The world has a moral aspect, a spiritual aspect, and a temporal aspect, and they're all related. So there's a, there's a moral sense, a moral aspect to the world at the individual, social, and, and governmental level. Right? For example, we may see a society declare certain things morally acceptable, like sexual immorality. Right? We may see a government pursue certain courses of action, such as unjust war against another nation. Right? These are all moral things. We can't, we can't um, remove that component here. Uh, the culture in which we live, uh, the world, right, is always sending out certain messages to us through things like advertising, legislation, entertainment, about what, according to the world system, is good or bad, right? The world has its own idea, its own concepts of what is good and what is bad. Yet the world system, we have to remember, is morally opposed to God. It's morally opposed to God and nearly always declares certain things good that are evil and declares certain things that are evil good. I, I just look at the response to Roe being overturned. Um, I, I have been shocked, right, shocked that there are those who think it is morally wrong not to allow a woman to kill her baby, right? It is morally evil, despicable, as some government officials have, have uh, used the word, to not allow women to do that, right? That is completely backwards from what we see in Scripture, right? That is calling what is evil good and what is good evil. Now, the world also has a spiritual aspect to it as well. Uh, throughout the world, there's various systems of religious worship. Um, some are, are blatantly idolatrous and may use actual statues to worship, right? A shrine with a statue in it. Um, others steal uh, and twist Christianity around, like, like Mormonism, for example. Other religions may not have a deity at the center of them at all necessarily, right? It's not necessarily a, a defined way of public worship or, or private worship necessarily, but there's still things that are religious in nature, spiritual in nature. Um, consumerism, for example, it's one of the great virtues of the West, right? Consumerism is right, basically saying that the meaning of human life is found in what you, in you, what you possess and what you own. It's found in the things that you can consume and buy, how much you have. That's really what life is about. That's a religious, spiritual statement at its core. Or humanism, for example. The meaning of life is found in human accomplishment, right? maybe in the legacy you leave behind or, or what your civilization can produce. At the, at the core of those beliefs is a religious and spiritual statement. It may not be an organized religion necessarily, but it is spiritual in nature. It's assigning um, a definition of the meaning of life. But make no mistake, right? all of these examples, whether, whether uh, an organized form of religion or whether um, consumerism or humorism, uh, humanism, excuse me, they're sinful spiritual responses to God. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 1 that man's response to God is to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what the world naturally does spiritually. It changes the truth for a lie and worships the creature rather than the creator, the one who's actually worthy of worship. 
The world system, spiritually speaking, is built on the agenda of rejecting the true worship of God according to his word. And it's, instead, it builds its own systems of worship, which we call idolatry. Now, the world is also temporal in nature. It's not eternal. It doesn't last forever, right? Um, and, and nobody really thinks that it does. Eventually, we, you know, you could talk to somebody and they think, yeah, Jesus is going to return and that'll be the end of this world. Okay, that's one person. Another person will have a fiery heat death from the sun. Nobody really thinks the world is eternal, uh, but we, we live that way sometimes. The world lives that way, right? The world is in a constant state of decay. Things are always breaking down. It's passing away, right? This is how the Bible describes it. Uh, the Apostle John, for example, writes that the world is passing away along with all of its desires. So the things that this world values and puts priority on are always temporary. They're always temporary. They're always things that will eventually disappear or fade out or decay. That could be material belongings, family relationships, your job, influence and power, self-expression, whatever it is, those things, some of which may be good, they're only temporary. So the world is moral, spiritual, and temporal. When we combine um, all of those systems together, when we see that the sinful nature of man is at the root of those things, we see that it's all the systems of humanity, right? Moral, spiritual, temporal, which come together, form a world system that's opposed to Christ. Um, but what's our relationship to the world as Christians? That's a question that we have to ask. It's fine to know what the world is, but what's our relationship to the world as Christians? That's something we need to know because we live in this world, don't we? We live in this world. I think it's uh, helpful to consider both our former relationship with the world and our present relationship to the world to get a full picture here. The Bible is abundantly clear that every human being is born a willing participant in the sinful world system. Right from, from birth, we seek to be the gods, the authorities of our own, our own lives. I turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll see what the Apostle Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is describing who we were before we became Christians, right? In other words, who we were from day one, day one. And here's what he says, starting in verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice what Paul says there. Do you see how he describes who we once were? We lived for ourselves. Uh, we lived according to the course of this world, right? The path, the road that this world travels is the one we were walking, hand in hand, right? That's who we were. We were living in a way, walking a path that was fundamentally opposed to God morally, spiritually, and temporally, right? We're all active participants in this as members of the world. That's who we were. That's who we were. And, and if you're not a Christian, maybe if you're watching online and you're, you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning, um, if you do not trust Christ alone to save you from your sins, if you've not been born again, then you're still in this world system. You still belong to it. You're still a part of it. But for the Christian, right, if you have been born again, if you do trust Christ alone to redeem you from your sins, then 
your relationship to the world has been fundamentally changed. It's not the same. That's why Paul says you were. This is what you were doing. The implication being this is not your relationship to the world any longer. We are no longer of the world, but have been called out of the world as Christians. I turn to John chapter 15 as we see Jesus' words shortly before his crucifixion. John chapter 15. Jesus is telling his disciples what life will be like after he ascends into heaven. And as we look at verse 18, uh, we'll see that Jesus speaks to this question of what is the believer's relationship to the world. And here's what Jesus says starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, that is Jesus, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now do you notice how Jesus creates essentially two categories here, right? There are those who are of the world, who are, who are in the world, who are part of the world system, um, who are active participants in those moral, spiritual, and temporal elements, right? And those, that, that system, right, which is composed of people, um, hates Christ and his disciples. Jesus is pretty black and white about that, right? But at the same time, Jesus' disciples are no longer of the world. They don't belong to that any longer. He has called us out of the world. Right? We are called to belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's our home. That's our, our citizenship, we could say, not the world system. Now, of course, we still live on planet Earth, don't we? Um, but our moral, spiritual, and temporal worldview is now completely different, or it should be completely different than what it was. Now, Peter writes that we've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We're no longer to think, live, speak, worship as the world system would do. In fact, we read in Galatians 4 that a major purpose of Christ's death was to bring us out of the world system. Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Now, does this mean that there is nothing good in the world system? There's nothing good in human culture? Well, of course there's good things, absolutely. Um, after all, we have to remember, God created all things, and he declared is good, right? God created man in original righteousness, made in God's own image. And there's still uh, vestiges of that that you can see in human culture. But what, what, what humanity does, what, what sinful man does, is take the good things that God made and try to use them against God. He tries to turn them around. Uh, for example, right, as Christians, we should love biology. We should love astronomy. They're great sciences. And, and really, done from a biblical worldview, they demonstrate the existence of God. They demonstrate his glory. Uh, but what sinful man does is try to do science by presupposing God does not exist, or in fact using science to try to prove God does not exist. Um, and that's not science, that's scientism. That's a very different thing. Medicine, right, that's a great gift to humanity. We should love medicine as Christians. We should love the preservation of human life. We should love good care of the human body. 
But look at how sinful humanity tries to say that, well, abortion is medicine. That's health care, right? Music, art, literature, entertainment, these are wonderful things. These can be used to glorify God. Where are we saying songs this morning? But look how easily right, mankind uses these mediums to try to promote some kind of agenda or try to push a moral envelope, right? Tries to send a message that opposes God and his law. Right? The world system takes the good things God has made and turns them around to try to use them as weapons <laughs> in a sort, right? And as Christians, we, we need to realize our relationship to the world system is completely different now, right? We are different than those who belong to the world system. And I think it's important to make a distinction here because we have the world system as a whole, and then we have the individuals in the world system. So it's important for us to, to make a distinction here because what we can be tempted to do is view the individual as the enemy, right? That is not true, right? The individual person who belongs to the world system, well, that's, that's not the enemy of the Christian. That's the mission field of the Christian, right? We should, we should love the individual. We should care about the individual regardless of what they believe, right? They could, they could be blatantly out loud, right, uh, blaspheming Jesus, but we should still love that person and care about that person and evangelize that person, right, if that's appropriate. That is different than what we are talking about is the world system. Right? which is mankind's best efforts to oppose Jesus. Right? There are two different things there. Our relationship to the world system is what we're talking about. But there's a little overlap. Right? We're told to be lights in the world. We're told to keep our un, uh, ourselves unstained from the world, James 1.14. We're told not to love the things of the world. doesn't mean not the people of the world, but the things of the world. 1 John 2.15. As soon as a person becomes a Christian, they're no longer captive to the world system, but they become citizens of a new kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And as a result, we become the object of the world's hostility at times, right? So how does the world oppose Christ and his church? How does the world hinder the Christian life? And that's something that we need to know as well, right? If we're going to live in this world in a way that honors Jesus, um, we need to understand the ways in which we may face difficulty. Right? The ways that we, uh, that we need to be um, vigilant, right? And there's a couple different ways. There's probably more than I'll be able to cover this morning in this sermon, but um, some of them are more explicit. Some of them um, are, are a little more subtle. Some of the things the world does because it is purposeful in trying to oppose Christ, other things the world does because of its natural sinful state. So we need to keep those things in mind as well. One of, the, one of the things that the world does to oppose Christ in his church is present falsehood as truth. The world presents falsehood as truth. Paul writes in Romans 25, again, uh, that mankind exchanges the truth of God for a lie. In other words, man says what is false is true, and what is true is false. And, and don't, again, misunderstand me here. There's certainly true things that the world knows and pursues, right? Modern medicine. You can't do modern medicine or biology unless there are true things, right? That's what a hypothesis uh, depends on, experimentation depends on. But at the same time, the world, when it comes to moral and spiritual issues, frequently exchanges truth for lies, right? The world tries to put forward its own principles and say, these are correct, you should do these things, instead of what God says is good. And even Christians can end up believing what the world asserts if they're not examining things next to scripture. 
Now, Paul writes in Colossians 2 that believers must be careful not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We want to be uh, captive to Christ as believers, right? We want to do what Christ does, but the world would say, no, 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 no. We have some better ideas for you. Right? The world is a system constantly sending out a barrage of messaging about certain things. And, and many times, if you look carefully, right, the message is false when compared to Scripture. And this messaging isn't just directed at Christians, right? It's, it's directed at everyone. Uh, but the message often conflicts with what we as Christians should believe according to Scripture. And so that's something we need to be wary of, right? There's many concrete examples of this in our day. Right? The world says there is no real truth. Each individual defines what is true for them. Live your own truth. But, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the world declares that gender, sexuality are just social constructs, right? And these are just things that we've invented as, uh, as descendants of monkeys, right? You can identify however you want and do whatever you want with whoever you want sexually, right? Uh, but God says he created man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Uh, the world declares the Bible is just like any other religious text. It's mythical. It describes a primitive God. It's an outdated message for the 21st century. But God declares that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. The world declares that the accomplishments of human beings are worthy of glory and honor and worship. But God says that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And there's really so many other things we could, we could examine here, right? So many other messages um, regarding the existence of God, the issue of sin, material goods, right? Family values, your job, all these things, your own happiness. And, and what these, um, these constant barrages can do for the Christian, if you are not rooted in Scripture and purposefully living according to biblical conviction, they will be like a wave that slowly erodes a sea cliff, right? We, we, we heard the parable of Jesus about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Well, the constant barraging of the world can act as a wave that reveals what the foundation of a person really is. And uh, Many times, it's, it's very sad to see, right? But we see believers who eventually start to go, yeah, I, I, I agree with what the world says on this. Or I agree with what the world says on that, even when God says something completely different, right? It shows a foundation of sand. It's very, very disheartening to see. Uh, but these messages come from all number of places, right? Advertising, social media, workplace training, entertainment, right? Uh, again, all these different mediums. So the first thing the world does is present what is false as true and vice versa. Another thing that the world does is it, it seeks to entice the flesh. Seeks to entice the flesh. Uh, another way that the world opposes God is through enticing uh, the sinful flesh of man. Now, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, what, is, what does this refer to? What is John talking about? We're talking about the allure of the world to mankind's sinful flesh. Right? There's things that our flesh craves, and the world caters to that. Um, and usually, right, when we think about that, we think of vices, right, sex, alcohol, that kind of thing. 
Um, but really, we need to include other things in here too. Sure, we could put alcohol and sex on that list, but the world also tries to entice uh, the flesh of man regarding power, right? Self-image, a new car, new possessions, traveling, have these experiences, right? And again, these things may not be bad in and of themselves, but the world entices the flesh because the flesh loves to pursue those things instead of Christ, right? Uh, there's a reason that advertising agencies use these kinds of things, right? Sex sells. Well, why do you, why do you think that is, right? What does the world live for? Uh, John just told us, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. So that's what the world is promoting things uh, to that end. And now, this isn't to say that the world, again, is intentionally targeting Christians with you know, a, a scantily clad woman on a billboard, but it is to say that the world system is constantly feeding itself, right? Feeding its own desires, desires of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life. And since we as Christians live in this world, we're exposed to these enticements as well, right? You have money in your pocket, just like somebody who's not a Christian does. Now, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, the main characters, Christian and faithful, enter a place known as Vanity Fair. Uh, it's a town that's very busy. It's, it's very exciting. It's a town where you can have anything you want. There's any number of pleasures, uh, pleasures, possessions, entertainments. Anything you could ever desire is there to, to be bought, sold, traded. And Vanity Fair is ultimately a picture of the world system, which appeals to all those things that sinful flesh desires. To the citizens of the world, the enticements of the flesh are, are natural. They're fun. Why wouldn't I pursue those things? And as Christians, we still wrestle with our sinful flesh, don't we? Those things can still tug on us. Why Peter tells us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. 1 Peter 2.11. Have you felt the allure of the world's enticements? Have you, have you seen a sexually provocative image and been drawn to it? Have you seen a car commercial and looked out on your driveway and said, Well, that car's oh, it's already two years old. I'm ready for an upgrade, right? Have you seen those things? Those people having those experiences. Right? You, you have to have it. You have to do those things too. We can all easily be drawn towards these things. Um, but loving the things of the world can actually cause us to fall away from our Christian profession and be unfaithful to Christ. The Apostle Paul writes a man, uh, about a man named Demas who, as Paul says, fell in love with this present world. And he abandons Paul. He abandons the work of preaching the gospel to pursue the things of the world. Jesus, right, in the parable of the sower, writes about the, the seed that's sown on the thorns. And he tells us that that represents the one who hears the word of the gospel, who receives it with joy at first, but eventually, as Jesus says, Mark 4.18, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfaithful. The, the enticements of the world are actually, while very appealing to our flesh, very dangerous for our souls. Because as our flesh is fed those things, we are drawn further and further away from Christ. Finally, number three, the world persecutes God's people. The world persecutes God's people. Going back to Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress, when the two characters, Christian and Faithful, refuse to join in the market revelry at Vanity Fair, they're 
not only mocked and imprisoned, but faithful is actually killed in the storm. Now, at times, the world's opposition to Christ does take on a purposeful and direct opposition, right, that's directed at Christians for the sake that they are Christians. And we call this persecution. Um, it's something Christians have experienced at various times and locations around the world. And going back to John 15, Jesus is very clear that this will happen, right? right? We, we, we heard how the world hates Jesus' disciples because it ultimately hates him. But then Jesus goes on to say, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now the world does sometimes have a very violent reaction to the gospel. The early church faced physical beating, arrest, martyrdom under the Roman Empire because of their faith, because they refused to participate in the Colosseum and in the Roman circus. Christians during the Protestant Reformation faced martyrdom for bringing the Bible to the common man in a language that could be understood by anybody and for preaching the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christians in the 19th and 20th century uh, began sending out missionaries to unreached countries around the world, and many of those missionaries were imprisoned and killed. And this still happens today. Uh, believers in African and South Asian countries especially face similar persecutions. Anywhere from being ostracized in society to being executed. Uh, this has always been and always will be something the world will do. In the book of Revelation, we, we encounter a woman. Uh, turn to Revelation 17 with me. We encounter a woman named Babylon, who essentially represents the world system. Listen to how she's described by the Apostle John, Revelation Chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine uh, coups sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Again, right, we see the world system at work here. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The world system does frequently turn to persecute and martyr those who belong to Christ. And in America, we've, we've enjoyed an existence that's been relatively free of persecution towards Christians. It, it really has, right? Um, but it seems tides could be changing, perhaps. Even this last week, in at least seven states, churches and uh, pregnancy resource centers were vandalized. Our brothers and sisters around the world face this kind of persecution, the risk of death, on a daily basis. And other countries have legislation in place that criminally prosecutes the preaching of the gospel or conversion to Christianity. A persecution is a reality for many believers across the globe. Now, in America, we may see the world enticing the flesh more, right, in our 
materialistic, over-sexualized culture. But in the Middle East, that may not be the tactic that the world system employs so much as persecution. Now, it does seem in reading the Bible that the world's persecution of Christians will get worse and worse before Christ returns to deliver his people. And, and that actually is the basis of the Christian's hope. Before we look at how we need to respond to the world's opposition, uh, we must first understand the incredible and encouraging reality that Christ has actually overcome the world. As we're talking about this enemy, we need to realize Jesus has already overcome it. What does Jesus say in John 16, 33? In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this is before Jesus has gone to the cross. But nonetheless, Jesus is speaking about what is going to be done and the effect it will have. Uh, Jesus tells us that even though we'll face opposition and difficulty as his disciples, that we must take heart, that we must find encouragement, and that we have a good reason to do so. Jesus has overcome the world. This enemy's been conquered already. If it were up to us, right, if it were up to us, which, which I, I get concerned because sometimes it seems that Christians do think it is up to us to overcome the world. If it were up to us, we could never overcome the world by ourselves. It wouldn't happen. We're not strong enough. We're not powerful enough. We're not morally pure enough. But Christ is, and he has overcome the world already. There's a champion who is much greater than you or I, and that's Christ. He's already been victorious. And how has he done this? How has Christ overcome the world? Well, ultimately, the victory of Christ is at the cross. It's at the cross. The moment where the world would look upon Jesus and say, you've been defeated, you've been humiliated. That is actually the moment when Jesus is overcoming the world most clearly. And that's the ultimate battleground, if you will, where Christ performs his great work of dying in the place of his people for their sins so that they might be forgiven, reconciled to God, and brought out of the, the world and into the kingdom of heaven, even while we still may live on earth for this time. I turn to Colossians 2. Look what the Apostle Paul says here. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, Paul writes this. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, meaning Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Right, that is the ultimate triumph of Christ. It's his finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later. There's a very real sense in which Christ has already overcome the world through his earthly work and ministry. Right? He's already delivered his people from this world in a way. And at the same time, we're still waiting for him, aren't we? We're still waiting for him to return, to judge the world in righteousness, and to remake it. When Christ returns, when that final trumpet is blown, the angels in heaven, right, the, the voices in heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation eleven, fifteen. Christ does reign over the world now, but there will come a day when the world will give an account to him, and on that day, the kingdoms of the earth, the world systems will be fully and finally conquered by 
right. So Jesus is victorious over the world now, and we are secure in that victory. But at the same time, we do await the final day of his return and ultimate victory. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do now while we're waiting for Christ? How do we resist and respond to a world that is hostile to Jesus, his law, and his church? Just a couple things. Again, there's probably so much more that could be said. But hopefully this at least scratches the surface for you. Uh, the first thing that must happen is you must be born again. You must be born again. It is through our salvation and, and our transformation, we call it regeneration, you get a new heart, right, a new mind, that we are brought out of this world system and into the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, this is a work only God can do. Right? You didn't um, cause yourself to be born the first time, and you, you don't the second time. Um, but unless God redeems you and changes you, right, you remain internally and externally of the world. You need to be born again. The Apostle John writes, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? This text Matt preached on last Sunday. So you need to be born again. And that happens ultimately by the grace of God. But know that the Lord does not turn away anyone who seeks him, who seeks the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ. The second thing that we must do is we must believe in Jesus Christ. And, and I don't just mean at the moment of salvation, but we must continue believing in Christ Jesus. We must not only be born again, but we must believe with saving and dependent faith day by day in the one who has truly overcome the world. And part of this requires not us, uh, us not only to believe in Christ Jesus, again, right, when we, when we turn from our sin to trust him, but to fix our eyes upon him daily. We read in Colossians 3 that if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. How do we resist the world and its enticements? We fix our mind on things that are heavenly in nature, on Christ himself, his goodness, what he's done for us, the blessings he gives us daily. And that doesn't mean we neglect earthly responsibilities. It does mean, though, that we must value and keep our eyes on Christ, his kingdom, and heavenly things first. You, you know when you, you are planning a vacation, right, and you're really excited to go, what are you thinking about in your mind, right? It's three weeks away. You've got your itinerary set up. You're just, you're just envisioning yourself there, right? On the beach, reading your book, climbing your mountain, whatever it is you're doing, whatever you like to do on vacations, you're, you're living for the moment as it's, as it's coming towards you, right? You're already there in your mind. Can't wait to be there. That is what we are called to do when it comes to heavenly things, right? Wow. Yeah, this world has a lot of things to offer, but man, what I have stored up for me in heaven, my Savior, his goodness towards me, that is, that's really what will satisfy my soul, right? So that's what we must do. Focus and fix our eyes on Christ. Continue to believe in him and to treasure him instead of the things that the world prizes, things of earth. Number three, we're called to love God and obey his commandments. This is another way in which we resist the world. In its moral, spiritual, and temporal nature. We love God, we obey his commandments. 
And the Apostle John told, uh, tells us in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, so to resist the world, we must not love it. We must love God instead. The world would have us follow its own paths, but we are called to love God and follow his paths, to obey his commandments. By seeking to honor God and do what's pleasing to him, by asking ourselves, right, instead of what the newest fad is for this or that, asking ourselves, what is pleasing to God? Because that hasn't really changed, right? We will be following the example of the psalmist. How can a young word keep his, man, uh, his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. So we're called to love God and obey his commandments rather than the world. Brothers and sisters, this world is not our home. Right? We, have to, we have to be cognizant of that because it's very easy to treat it like it is. Now, this world's hostile towards Christ and his people. And, and we are called not to live as citizens of this world first and foremost, right? There's a great appeal, great allure to our flesh. And the Bible tells us that at this point in time, Satan has great influence over the world system. But by grace, we have been called out of that. And we now belong to Christ. So while we wait for Christ, we really just to boil it down, right? What's the big takeaway? While we wait for Christ, our greatest defensive and offensive strategy is it's really, in a way, simple. It comes down to worship, right? It comes down to worship. We worship God in loving his truth. We worship God in loving his commands. We worship God in loving him. And to close with Paul's exhortation from Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we live in this world, brothers and sisters, let us do these things. Let us seek to be transformed in the renewing of our minds, worshiping God, loving him, loving his commands, and that as we do that more and more, the appeal of the world will become less and less. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, uh, you are so kind to us, so gracious. You have called us out of darkness to belong to Christ Jesus. And uh, Lord, we could never have done this. And to be honest, Lord, we never would have by ourselves. We love being part of the world and all that was in it. But Lord, you have opened our eyes to the glory of eternal things, to our need for Christ. And you have given us an all-sufficient Savior. And Lord, it is true. Psalm 63 says that your steadfast love is even better than this life. And Lord, you have not been stingy with that love, but you have blessed us abundantly. So Lord, would you help us to prize those things that are above in heaven where Christ is. Lord, help us to treasure those things, to pursue those things, to value those things. Lord, so that we might be uh, lights in this world. And that even though this, this world system, Lord, is certainly corrupt and opposed to you, Lord, you are continuing to redeem individuals from out of it. And Father, we pray we might be used in that way. 
used to share the good news of Jesus Christ with, uh, with those who would listen. Lord, we thank you again for your redemption. And Lord, we look forward to the world to come, the new creation. Uh, Lord, to the, the age after this in which you reign over all things in perfect righteousness. And we dwell with you. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.